Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Pacifica host and deep dive political analyst Garland Nixon on same U.S. endless wars, different knuckle dragging Nazi neocons. Hello, Garland Nixon here, and uh, what are, what's happening in Eastern Europe, in Europe, all over Europe? Well, what has happened is this. The Ukrainians, having followed the instructions of Biden and Newland and Blinken and Sullivan, you know what? I could stop right there. I could stop right there. If I just said somebody, anybody, followed the instructions of Biden and Newland and Blinken and Sullivan, you will know that their life met calamity. You will know that they slammed their damn head into the side of a brick wall at some point. If you listen to those knuckle-dragon Nazis, you things ain't going to work out. I'm just saying things ain't going to work out well for you. So the Ukrainians were bamboozled into thinking that these neocons were on their side and they were thrown into a, a, a pit of bears in a nutshell. Hey, trust me. Russia may be 28 times bigger than you and have multiple times the uh, amount of people that you have. And they may have a giant air force and you pretty much got none. And uh, pretty much when it comes to wars, they knock the hell out of uh, Napoleon and Hitler and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think you can take them, guys. Yeah, well, they can't take them. Let's just go here. They can't take them. And now the Biden administration is doing exactly what they do. When they sponsor some poor schlumps to run out in the battlefield and get mowed down like cannon fodder, at some point, the thing goes bad with neocons. At some point, things go bad. And when it does, I've said this before, they exercise what I call the Samsonite option. They pack their bags, they get the hell out of town, and they leave your ass to die. And that's what's going on with Ukraine. So that's where we are. And might I add, I don't think things are going so well for the uh, Europeans right now. Their economy's gone to hell. The U.S. is breaking them. Um, they pissed off the Africans so bad that the Africans picked, uh, kicked the French out of Africa. And so now the French can't rob the gold and uranium and stuff like that. So now the French are struggling. They're going to fall into dire poverty now that they can't live like leeches off the Africans anymore. And none of them got cheap Russian oil. And they're paying five to seven times, four to seven times what they paid for gas before, but they're buying it from the U.S. Oh, isn't that great? The U.S. really looked out for you, and they're going to sell you gas. It's seven freaking times the number that they sell it to other people. Suckers. So, needless to say, the U.S. was like, ah, we got a new war, and uh, we ain't giving any money anyway. Yeah, Ukraine. You know, look, let's face it. The Republicans are like, we're not giving any money more to Ukraine. And the Democrats are like, oh, darn. Hey, can we get money for Israel? And the Republicans are like, oh, didn't you hear us say we're not giving any money to Ukraine? And the Democrats are like, oh, man, crap, that really sucks. Huh? Well, well, you know, hey, what can, what, are you, what, what can you do, you know? But uh, let's get back to Israel right now here. How about another $14 billion for Israel? They're done. You know, the, 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 the Democrats, you know this? They ain't fighting the Republicans. The Republicans are like, yeah, we'll give you some money for Ukraine. All you got to do is give us what we want for the border. And the Democrats are like, so let me get this straight. If we make a deal with you on the border and give you what you want, money, things like that, then you will give us the money to continue the Ukraine conflict. And the Republicans are like, exactly. And they're like high-fiving their little group. Yeah, we're going to get the money. We're going to get our border money. They're high-fiving. They're fist-bumping. They're chest-bumping. They're doing all that stuff, right? We're going to get it. And the Democrats go huddle. All right, the Democrats are huddling. Guarantee when they come back, they're going to say, we got your money for the border. And the Republicans are like, we're going to win. Yes. And the Democrats are like, Oh, yeah, never mind. Ah, screw the border and the Ukraine and all of that kind of crap. See ya. Uh, we're going to go get some lunch. Toodles. And off they go. They don't want to give any more money to Ukraine. They're done with Ukraine. They're finished with it. They used it up like a piece of toilet paper. They pooped on it, and now it's time to flush it. That's what Ukraine gets. Idiots like Zelensky are running around. These Ukrainian oligarchs are running around. Yeah, whoa, 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 we stole some money, didn't we? And there's more coming. And Zelensky's like, ah, yeah, bad news. There ain't no more coming. 
and and the uh and and really the neocons, you know what they're like. They're going to be like, hey, you guys better do a deal with Putin or something like that. I don't know, whatever. But we're we got to go back over here and deal with this uh Israel thing. But whatever you want to do, do a deal with Putin or don't. Who gives a damn? Ukrainians are like, but we'll all be killed while we're on the front line. They're like, um. Something, yeah. Uh, give me a call. Let me know how that works out for you. I'm out. They're done. They're finished with Ukraine. So what you have? Let's look and see. So meanwhile, Bill apparently, in their wisdom, said, "Here we go." NATO has five years to prepare prepare with Russia, right? So apparently. Um, the German media last week claimed uh, that uh, Berlin was bracing for Russians for hostilities with Russia. It could uh, they could uh, arise as early as the summer of 2025. So they go on and they're like, "Hey, you know, we got to do something um, we, because Putin's going to attack us, right?" U.S. President Joe Biden claimed that Moscow could attack a NATO nation after defeating Ukraine. Oh, wait a minute! I thought there was no chance they were going to defeat Ukraine, so they got to worry about that, huh? Hey. If they defeat Ukraine, which there's no possibility they will, then maybe they'll attack somebody else. Well, good news. Okay, so there we go. So they said, uh, so he said, look, they're going to attack, so we got to have 110 billion, right? Well, okay. So what happens next? Of course. Hey, they, 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 what are we going to do? Uh, we can't get the money. So the NATO countries then figure, my God, we're in a world of trouble. We'll have to scare our people. That's all it is. We will have to scare our people. So now they go to their people. Russia's going to attack us any day, any month, any hour, any minute. Here they come. So therefore, even though you're hungry, you're cold, your life is a living hell, you're broke, your industry, stop me, stop me when it gets bad, your industry's out the window, your girlfriend left you, your kids hate your freaking guts, and there's nothing good on TV. But we got to take all your money. What little few stinking scrimp of a little pennies that you got left, Germany, France, Italy. I know it ain't much. You got a few pennies left. You got a little bit of lint in your pocket. We're going to take that and give it to Ukraine. That's what they're, that's all it is. You have to be afraid, man. You got to be scared. You got to be horrified. Why? Because how else are we going to convince you to give your less stinking dime to these friggin' Nazis? I mean, uh, these good guys over here that are fighting to protect us all are these gentlemen and scholars. But how else are we going to convince you to do that, right? So um, NATO's got to prepare because uh, here comes the Russia. Let's look at some of the preparations and how prepared they are. They're ready to take on the old Ruskies, are they? Let's take a look. Ooh, Germany puts his troops in the line of fire if Putin attacks NATO. Berlin is moving with unaccustomed speed to station a new armored tank brigade in Lithuanian area. Strategists see it being, well, that's, man, okay. All righty. They're putting their money where their mouth is. They, uh, look, Germany's like, man, if you think the Russians are coming through the Saviki Gap and get us, we got a tank brigade there, bro. We got them. They're done. They're Okay. So let's take a peep at this and see what it says. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is prompting Germany to do something unprecedented, to permanently base thousands of troops 100 kilometers from the border with Russia and right in the line of fire of the Kremlin. Everyone launches them. Okay, right. So they're saying uh, 4,800 German troops and 200 civilians. With this war-ready brigade, we're assuming a leadership responsibility here in the alliance on NATO's eastern flank. Uh, flank the story said wow a war ready brigade tanks a tank brigade of 4,800 4, people yeah that don't really scare the Russians they only got like 800,000 people right there on the border 4,800 people in a tank brigade will surely get them right okay right we got they got to prepare they got all oh, they got three two three years five years before the Russians come across the border they're sending a tank brigade to Lithuanian border, 4,800 people to protect uh, from the Russians who are like getting 30,000 new people a month join. Uh, the Russians can put 100,000 people pretty much anywhere on any given day, soldiers, but they're going to put 4,800 people, a tank brigade, 
Now, there's something interesting about that tank brigade. They don't have any tanks, but they're on order. So if the Russians come across, they're going to be like, all right, drop them, Krauts. And they're going to be, hold on a minute, Russians. One second. We're, you can get it now, man. You Russians, now you've asked for it, buddy. You stepped in at this time. Your ass is at grass every last. But hold on one second here. They're going to call, hey, headquarters. Yeah, uh, about those Leopard 2 tanks, we need some. Uh, we're about 18 months out. All right, hold on. Yeah, uh, Dimitri there. We're ready to give you what for, why not, and don't do it again. We're going to give you rights. We're going to give you lets. We're going to give you punches. You're going to get it now. Although, if we could just work out a slight delay of about 18 months, give or take a month or two, because when we get them in, you know, we don't have ammunition. We got to practice on them. Maybe, you know, got to work out the kinks. If you could give us an 18 months, this 4,800-man tank brigade, Forgive me if I misgendered some of the Germans because all of them might not want to be called men. You know, Germany is now these days. I don't know that gender stuff. I don't understand it. I'm kind of old, but, you know, that's NATO for you. Um, they don't have any tanks. And so the 4,800 men, person, multi-gendered uh, tank brigade that has gone to stop the Russians dead in their tracks is going to have to wait for tanks. And then... They will face probably 150,000 Russians, but no doubt, if they ever get their mitts on those tanks, those Russians are done, finished. I mean, look how well the Leopard 2s are performing in Ukraine right now. It's not like they're just being blown to smithereens by Russian cordat missiles. Yes, that's right. The NATO has got it going, man. It's like, look, here's what we're going to do. They're ready to take on the Ruskies, brother, and the Ruskies are going to get what they asked for. And coming up next on Arts Express. He's gone. And now the high table is broken. I wonder who is going to be the one to pick up the pieces. You forget that the Ruska Roma is bound by the high table. And the high table stands above all. We're going to make one last stand against said table. You sure you want to do that? You know, I know who you are. They didn't tell you who I am today. We need every hand we can get to pull this off. Time to come out of retirement, John. There's a storm coming for all of us. For everyone under the table. Under the table is where it gets done. were scenes from the John Wick sequel, Ballerina, opening in June and starring Ian McShane once again as the enigmatic Winston. And McShane is our guest on the show, dropping hints about what's in store with Ballerina, as well as his current portrayal in American Star in release this week. And very much not your typical hitman in this allegorical crime thriller with much more on its mind than typical mayhem, owing in large part to the outsider-looking-in perspective of a Spanish director, Gonzalo Lopez Gallego, on a problematic U.S. impact in the world, in this case, the ironically titled American Star drawing comparisons between that real-life, now-battered cruise ship commandeered into World War II and McShane's bewildered Falkland veteran, perplexed, not unrelated, private company hitman for hire. First, some scenes from American Star, in which French actress Fanny Ardant, longtime lover of the late directing legend Francois Truffaut, makes seductive moves on McShane's hitman, then Ian McShane. I'm Gloria. Wilson. What do you do? Security. I deal mainly with business. 
So why are you here? Just making sure everything's in order. It is. The ship, the American star. It's on the other side of the island. Do you always go on holiday alone? I like meeting people. They say there are three sorts of people in Forteventura. Those who live here, tourists, and those who are running from something. I don't live here. And you don't look like a tourist. Someone turned up. What kind of intel is this? Rule number one, the less you know about the target, the better. I've been told to stay on the island. I work alone. Think of me as the wind beneath your wings. The reason of her interest in you is that you remind her of her father. What are you doing? Rita, he knows the target. You know, the one you're involved with. I'm you not involved with anybody. Don't lie to me! Rule number one! I'll finish this job. Hello, Ian, and welcome to our show. Oh, hi. Okay, and are you in L.A. right now? I'm in Los Angeles, yeah. Oh, okay. What are your thoughts about the film being much more than just a crime thriller, with the story anchored in your hitman's existential crisis and how he relates to a younger generation? Well, I think the younger generation, it's, it's, it's how he reacts to the... You know, he spoke the kid. I mean, when you see him at the hotel, and those hotels are very much... They're big time. People pay up front. For, you know, everything's included. I mean, the shot at the beginning, you see the leg, you know, when he gets in the pool with the ladies in there and he wanders around the hotel and you see him. And it's Amelia that he tries to fit into. Then he meets the young kid in the corridor who speaks to him. And in- I also meant about the younger generation, your nephew and the, the young woman. Oh, yeah. Well, he's brought into it. I mean, I yeah. think he blames himself at the end of the movie for having brought his nephew into this step, you know, for all the best reasons. You know, you want to be a soldier like your dad and whatever. It's an honorable thing to do. But then somehow he gets involved in whatever. It's a government operative, perhaps, at the end of it. It's never never explained exactly. But the young kid's, you know, more in charge than he is. Mm. And And it's always, you know, forces beyond your control that put you into something. And he's made his own mistake, as the kid says to him. You made your own mistake. You know, you did your, your your own first rule. Don't get involved and don't stay on. Get in and get out, which is always the first rule of anybody. Mm. And he commits the mistake. He, he suffers at the end of it. Now, you're the producer as well as the star of this film. So what was it about yeah. American Star that inspired you to come on board personally, creatively, or historically, and with its subject matter rooted in the real world as well? Um, I was. I never came on board. It was. I was. Um, I made a movie with Gonzalo about seven years ago called um, Hollow Point with Patrick Wilson, John Leguizamo, and myself. Mm. And uh, I immediately became fast friends with Gonzalo and loved the way he worked and with his cameraman Jose David Montero, who he always works with. And it was a very tight Western noir movie, which never really got the sort of um, showing out it deserved. But we remained friends. About a year after we made it and it came out, he got in contact. We've been in contact. He, he mentioned this movie. He said, I want to make a movie with you again. I said, I want to make one with you. And he came up with this idea of Wilson, Wilson the character on this island, because he lives, he lives in the Canary Islands. And this is a real story about this ship that went aground there. Exactly, actually, I think it was 30 years ago. Now, January sort of um, 1990, in the early, late 80s, 90s. And um, combining together with the the ship, the idea of a falling ship, the metaphor for a man who's lived his life in a sort of lonely manner and as a hitman. But I think it's less the story of a hitman than the story of a man. He's just on a job, comes to an island where he falls in love. The intelligence fails him to begin with. He's forced to stay a day and compromise with himself, which he's never done before. But he likes it. Then he finds himself committing the cardinal error, which is get in and get out quickly. He stays. And as a result of which, with his ensuing relationships, which I don't think he's used to, like with the kid, 
and with the girl, and with the girl's mother, which he's drawn into situations which he would normally avoid, he courts, as well as emotional needs, which he's obviously had and which he's enjoying, he causes disaster for what he does for a living. And it ends in, a, in you know, he, he really creates his own fate in a sense, which he knows, but tries to avoid. Mm. So it's, um, it's a morality tale as well as a, as a genre of being hitman. I think it's elevated by the other characters in it and by the way that Gonzalo shoots it, which is, um, he's a very humanistic director and he gives that, he gives that to all the work he does. Mm. And I think that shows in the movie. And what are your thoughts about those seeming identity crisis parallels in American Star? Your character as a government combat soldier in the Falkland Islands turned private contract assassin, and the American Star as a capitalist enterprise cruise ship commandeered by the U.S. government into the World War II military. Um, well, he's a, he's a soldier, which is, means you, know, you obey orders, which is easier. And he chose to go into a life afterwards, whatever. And he never heard about, he never heard about the American star. But once he realizes it's a liner, it's rather like, you know, the, the ships when the Falcon Islands, I mean, that's what the government Britain did. They immediately commandeered passenger ships and used them as weapons of war. And that's where he lost, you know, and on a result, he lost his best friend, as a result of which his best friend's son. He brought into it, as he said, the scene with Adam Negatis, who's terrific, when Adam said, oh, you know, you, you couldn't wait to be a soldier like your dad, and realizing that he's created, he's been partially, he's created a, a sort of a monster, in a sense, mm. of a, of what's what he is himself, when he's been usually related to. But still, you know, soldiers have a, you know, once you leave military life, it must be enormously difficult, combined with results of where you serve, whether you have PTSD or you're simply looking for something else in life when you leave the military. Because the military is the military, which is how the problems you have about, you know, and people love wars. People love wars are very, wars make money. Wars make a lot of money for everybody involved. The only victims of it are the warriors themselves. And, uh, but this is a thing of his own making, which he realizes at the end and, and adds to his own if you like, well, I'm not going to give the end away. Well, <laughs> I am. I'm sort of because it, it's like he thinks he's here. He's created something, and he thinks he's created a way out of it. But the end is it a dream anyway? Mm. From the last shots. That's why I love about working with um, Gonzalo and the cinematographer Zidavi because it's formalistic in its approach. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's opportunistic. I think it's a film that follows its own line very well. And, we're, and you know, I worked and when I brought it, when we worked on it for about four years, and I did a movie called Jawbone with a man called Michael Elliott who produced that. He was my partner in this. Uh, eventually, when I brought it to him and said, you know, well, and he loved it, and they produced, and he brought it to his production company, Emu Productions. And we all did it together with Spanish co-partners, and we made a film that we're very proud of. And I'm glad to see it's out there now, and to be able to talk about it. And I want to ask you, anything you can reveal or not about the upcoming ballerina and what you'll be up to? Oh, yeah, well, I've got two. It, it takes place in between 70, I mean, episode uh, three and episode four of John Wick. And because uh, obviously Keanu's is in it. Um, and Lance, the dear, my dear, 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 dear friend who I work with so well and think of often tragedy occurred last year, Lance Reddick. Yeah, we're in that. And it's, um, we provide, if you like, the Continental provides safe haven for another assassin, this time, the wonderful Anna de Armas. You know, and that's all I'll, that's all I'll say about that one. Okay. <laughs> and I think we have time for one last question. When Ian Machine looks in the mirror, what does he see? What does he see? He sees, um, well, I look every morning because I shave myself. <laughs> so, yeah, he sees, some, <laughs> he sees somebody who's very, you know, I look at it like I do today. I'm looking at myself now, speaking to you in a, in a thing and thinking, oh, you don't look bad. You've been around a long time. You're still making movies. Still happy. I love my wife. We have a good relationship. I'm it's nice to be talking about a movie. And um, I hope I'll be around next year to talk about another movie. Mm. There you go. 
And any, Happy New Year. <laughs> and any last word about American Star and what you'd like to convey to audiences? Oh, yeah, I think they'll have a good time. Get out there and see it. It's not just, uh, it's not just a, a Hitman movie. It's more than that. And there's some terrific performances from actors of all ages. In. And I think it's beautifully shot, beautifully done, and we made the film we wanted to make. And that's all you can say about a movie. We're all very proud of it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Ian Machine, for calling into our show. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. Bye. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is the UK Desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of The Power of Film, a new six-part documentary series which is currently playing every Thursday on Turner Classic Movies, Fade Up, Interior, Public Library, Ground Floor, Late Night. 7. 1995, starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. Written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Directed by David Fincher. Gentlemen, gentlemen. I'll never understand. All these books. A world of knowledge at your fingertips. What do you do? You play poker all night. Hey, we got culture. Yeah, we got culture coming out our ass. <laughs> How's this for culture? Fade to Black. In classic essays such as Culture and Anarchy from 1869 and Literature and Dogma from 1873, the 19th century English poet and literary critic Matthew Arnold wrote that culture is the intellectual and moral pursuit of the best of what has been thought and said in the world. Indeed, for writers, artists and their audiences, Arnold puts forward that culture should be the loving pursuit of total perfection in technical, intellectual, emotional and spiritual terms. In this way, the completed creative work, once released into the public sphere, will then inevitably transcend today and every day for all days, standing the test of time as it illuminates us and elevates us, individually and collectively, as human beings for generations to come. It is for this very reason why Johann Sebastian Bach's Air on the G-string in D major, the orchestral piece which George plays for Somerset in our clip from Seven, has survived and thrived as a musical composition for over 250 years. If Arnold was writing today, along with music, sculpture, painting, literature, architecture and performance, he would, of course, also direct his critical attentions and moral judgments on the seventh of these arts, cinema. And it is here where Turner Classic Movies' new six-part documentary series, The Power of Film, finds its footing and its focus. I stick my neck out for nobody. Well, darling, look out, because my hair is coming down. Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. There are certain films that people keep going back to over and over again. I'm gonna make them an awful kind of Films that were not only popular in their day, but that continue to be popular. You talking to me? And my question is, why? It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it! Rosebud. I'm Howard Subert. 
For over five decades, I've taught thousands of aspiring directors, producers, screenwriters, and scholars the patterns and principles I've found in America's most memorable popular films. Join me as we discover the power of film. Howard Suber, the prominent professor emeritus at UCLA's Department of Film, Television, and Digital Media, is the curator and narrator who has chosen to hold Arnold's lantern aloft, leading us through not only the avenues and alleyways of US cinema history, but also through the Maisie Museum of our own personal movie memories. Quote, I'm in the pattern recognition business, Suber assures us, and proceeds to apply his theoretical framework to an array of popular North American films from the near and distant past in order to discover how and why some have managed to stand the test of time while most others have not. Suba suggests that certain movies remain in the public consciousness because they culturally reverberate with the self-same existential crises which classic characters have always endured throughout history, usually with a natural or surrogate family as a dramatic backdrop. For instance, Michael Corleone in The Godfather 1 and 2 from 1971 and 1974 respectively can be seen to be pursuing a similar path to Shakespeare's Hamlet as he seeks revenge for his father's attempted murder. Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction from 1987 evokes Euripides' murderous Medea in her obsessed quest for retribution after she is spurned by her married lover, Dan Gallagher. And, in turn, we have R.P. McMurphy, who is equally enraged and enamoured by Nurse Ratched, his maternal nemesis in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, a cinematic silhouette of Sophocles' tragedy, Oedipus Rex, from 429 BC. In direct relation to these singular trans-historical characters, we also have the archetypal male hero in US movies, whose messianic duty, Suber asserts, is to save his community without any earthly reward, for his courage and defiance in the face of adversity can only lead him to sacrifice, exile and a memorial. Thus, in 1952, at the end of High Noon, we witness Hadleyville's battle-weary sheriff, Will Kane, throw his tin star in the dirt and turn his back on the townsfolk. In Dirty Harry from 1971, we observe nihilistic San Francisco detective Harry Callahan toss his badge into the quarry and turn his back on the police force. And in 1979's Apocalypse Now, we watch the exhausted assassin, Captain Willard, drop his machete at the feet of the brainwashed natives who worship him and turn his back on Vietnam. Three unforgettable scenes which each follow the same prototypical pattern. Suba also calls for us to attend to another key component in cinematic storytelling, which, if executed properly and skillfully, can further contribute to a sense of timelessness in the popular imagination. That is to say, he pinpoints indelible themes which have interwoven themselves throughout our shared histories, geographies and cultures. And when these themes are brought to the surface and into the light by the creative process, we are instinctively drawn to them as people. Our curator's lantern sways towards the theme of power, for example, and how it can either produce or prevent positive change within characters. In A Beautiful Mind from 2001, we follow the brilliant mathematician John Nash and his loving and supportive wife, Alicia, as he attempts to empower himself by taking control of his schizophrenic hallucinations. Alternatively, in 1987's Wall Street, we find Bud Fox, a slick corporate operator, attempting to empower himself by way of wealth, women, cars and corruption, while divesting himself of his loyalties to his working class family. Ultimately, the capitalist power which Bud Fox so eagerly reaches out for has no real human value, and it begins to fall through his fingers like sand once he is arrested for insider trading. Importantly, Howard Suber takes us aside to remind us of the incredible intimacy such universal themes possess, experiences which each of us will encounter in one form or another, again and again, from the cradle to the grave. Troubling and disturbing sequences of loss and pain, 
played out on the silver screen with ghost-like figures so wistfully lit, so effortlessly enacted, so perfectly pitched. Luke Skywalker's dazed despair as he discovers his family slaughtered on their farm in Star Wars A New Hope in 1977. The surge of sorrow which lifts the spaceship up off the ground as Elliot's kindred companion departs for the stars in E.T. in 1982. And the agony of injustice when, as simple and naive children, we realise Bambi's mother has been shot dead in the snow of 1942 and she will never, ever be coming back. Oh, to welcome the bittersweet truth of a secret wound opening up once again. Our eyes singed with tears, our lips chapped with kisses, our hearts sustained by woe. This documentary series promises to continue its cultured journey through the history of popular US cinema with civility, decorum and care. As a consequence, it is highly recommended to viewers who wish to pursue their appreciation and understanding of film on a deeper and more memorable level. The Power of Film is available now on Turner Classic Movies. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. This is Comrade Karl Marx, and when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite. That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the local. And next up on Arts Express... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. We've featured the work of the Portuguese Communist Party fiction writer Manuel Tiago on this show several times with dramatic readings from some of his short stories. Those stories are part of an eight-book Portuguese-to-English translation project about the 50-year fight against the Portuguese fascists from the 1920s to the 70s. Now, that series has recently come to completion with the publication of the last novel to be translated, titled... Until tomorrow, comrade. I'm happy to have with us the translator of this series, as well as the author of Ballad of an American and Cultural Critic for People's World, Eric Gordon. Hi, Eric. Good morning. Good morning. Well, tell us about Until Tomorrow, comrade. Well, this is the uh, last of, of the eight books in the series. There actually were nine in the original Portuguese publishing project, but two of them were actually uh, short novellas. And uh, we published the first one, Five Days, Five Nights, uh, not realizing how short it was. And then there was another short one. And so we combined that with another book of short stories. So we have eight books in in English, uh, but it it is the complete fictional oeuvre of uh, Manuel Tiago. Manuel Tiago was the uh, pen name of Alvaro Cunhal. He was the longtime leader of the Portuguese Communist Party uh, and, and fascism took over in Portugal in the late 20s. So for almost the entire uh, life of its career until the fascism was overthrown in 1974, the Portuguese Communist Party was the main opponent and organizer of resistance. Uh, there were uh, some other, you know, liberals, socialists, but only the Portuguese Communist Party really held it together and had the the apparatus clandestine for the most part to carry through the resistance organizing students, women, workers, obviously, farmers, peasants, uh, and certain elements within the the liberal you know educated class. So this book, Until Tomorrow Comrades, was actually written in prison. Alvaro Cunial was imprisoned several times. The longest term was from 1949 to 1960. And this book uh, was written in prison in the 1950s. And he actually took the manuscript of this book with him when he escaped. Tell us what the plot of the book is. 
Well, it takes place in some unidentified place, but a rural community in around 1943 or four or so. The war is not referenced very much. The, the struggle is all about organizing workers in factories and farms. The book is 400 pages long, and it involves a, a cell or multiple interlocking cells of the Communist Party who are trying to organize a general strike in this area. It, it involves recruiting factory workers. There's a, a wood finishing factory and, and others. And there's also uh, the agricultural sector. It's not an idealization of these, these characters. There's about eight characters who are members of the party and, and organizing on their different levels. Some of them are more reliable than others. Some women, as well as men, most, mostly a male-dominated party, as you can imagine in, in times like that. But women play a, a very central role. Uh, Maria, in particular, has very conflicted relationships with almost all of these men. And the book traces the very slow, very patient evolution of relationships between party and people and how they raise funds and how they distribute a clandestine press and how they go out at night and put up posters announcing the, the general strike and how people come around and are influenced and join the movement and also how there are spies in the movement from the regime and there are betrayals and some people talk and some people don't. And uh, there's torture, and it's it's a it's a very rich, dense book, granular. I've called it. You know, it's it's really the the life of the Portuguese people as the Communist Party is trying to organize resistance against this massive machine, which is the uh, fascist regime. I think he adopted this pen name of Manuel Tiago. Uh, which is kind of like Joe, you know, Joe Blow, Joe Smith. It's a it's a common name. It's a kind of like a, a you know, people's name, uh-huh. John Doe. But it, it's sort of vague enough that no one really knew who it was. He felt that through the medium of fiction, he could convey all the lessons and teachings and wisdom that he had acquired over a lifetime of activism and organizing not only that he had acquired, but the party had acquired. You know, the party had developed a whole body of, of wisdom. The fact that these are now available in English for the first time means that uh, we, who are, are quite possibly fa- facing a fascist future ourselves, really have, I wouldn't say a blueprint, because conditions are different. It's, uh, and, but in terms of how to organize uh, cells. People don't know who is at the next level up or who's at the next level down. Well, you expect the head of a communist party to be a theoretician, but he was so practical and uh, so involved in everyday life. He really knows people and their types, and he doesn't flinch. He's been called a, a neo-realist. Yes. Reading his books, it's like seeing one of those neo-realistic films like The Bicycle Thief. Yes. You really feel the common person in all their floors being depicted. And it's, yes, yes. It's centered yes. not in ideology, really, but in, in human nature almost. Right. He was a very keen observer. You know, he, he recognized the flaws in people. You really don't see this as, you know, the typical socialist realist writing, you know, a man no. falls in love with tractor. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and uh, no. it, it, it's, it, they're very honest portrayals of, of real people. You've just completed, finished translating this book until tomorrow, comrade, but it's actually the first book that was written. And you've called this his masterwork. Why yeah. so? Well, it's certainly the largest work. In the shorter works, you don't have the time and the space to fully develop characters. But in, in 400 pages, you can really get into the nitty-gritty of people's contradictions, their idiosyncrasies. One of the people in the leadership of this little cell is a university-educated 
uh, man who has, you know, who knows all the manners of fine dining and eating and, and uh, cuisine and knows how to conduct himself at a dinner party. And his uh, consort, a woman who has been assigned to him, is a former worker at a jute factory. She's a comrade uh, and very talented at organizing women in the jute factory. But she's not educated. And there's a wonderful scene of a dinner party that they attend where Maria can't even eat. She doesn't even know how to hold the silverware. And I'll read from the scene. They sat at the table. A servant dressed in black with a white apron brought a steaming tureen which the lady of the house served, the thick brown soup that gave off a vague aroma of fish. Stunned by the ambiance, Maria barely noticed the aroma. The big problem she had at the moment was to figure out which of the spoons she was to eat the soup with. And what were those little blonde cubes, and what purpose they served, she couldn't begin to say. The lady of the house once again came to her aid. Don't you want to put some in your soup? Chagrined, Maria thanked her and said yes, and prepared to serve herself. But with what? Confounded, she used her fingertips to take a few of those blonde cubes and drop them in her soup. They turned out to be croutons. Oh, damn it! She was so clumsy that she let four or five of them fall onto the immaculate tablecloth. The couple and Antonio seemed not to notice anything. They conversed and laughed with great relish, speaking of things that... Maria didn't understand, with words she didn't know. But with all that was happening, what truly shocked Maria the most was Antonio. Since he had stepped into the lawyer's house, he seemed like a different person. In his behavior, his expressions, the way he tapped his cigarette on his left thumbnail, in the way he laughed and in the mannered tone in which he addressed the lords of the house. Even in the words he used that Maria didn't understand, Antonio sounded completely alien from the Antonio she had known up to then. The simple, fraternal Antonio of a humble party house. And now, the equal, on a complete par with the lawyer and his wife? Maria remembered that Antonio had been a student who came from a family like that, maybe wealthier. And this, too, now heightened her resentment. The, the contrast between the life experience of these two characters at that dinner party uh -huh. illustrates that people come to the party from all walks of life and all kinds of experience. Where did he learn to write? To write a novel like that, <laughs> in prison, no less. That um, is a very good question. Uh, he, he was a lawyer. He was a trained lawyer. So he was educated. He came from a you know middle class background. I'm sure he you know was a lover of fiction. I think the the single work in the proletarian literature of the world uh, that he probably modeled until Tomorrow Comrades after is the Emil Zola novel Germinal, which talks uh. about a miners' strike. So I think he must have read Germinal and probably tried to translate the ethos to first of all to portray the 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 landscape the situation that people are living under to show that there are good reasons that people should be angry and should want to organize what was the reception of the works when they were first published in portuguese well until tomorrow comrades was made into a television miniseries and the first book five days five nights was made into a feature film and some of these other books are ripe for film adaptation as, as well. And what would you like readers to come away from reading these books? Well, I think uh, especially the first book was published in 2020 when Trump was in his final year of office. The, the final book of the series was published in 2023. And there is a growing threat of fascism in this country. Uh, what I hope people get is to 
take the threat of fascism extremely seriously. It is not a joke, and, uh, and Trump is not a joke. And even if Trump is not elected, the right-wing think tanks have got it all sketched out to you know, set up a unitary uh, presidency and uh, basically put into effect the, the kind of fascist system that, uh, that Trump talks about openly. So I hope that uh, people take this threat utterly to heart and commit to doing something every day to make sure that that eventuality doesn't happen. Anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up? Well, buy these books, uh, read these books. And, uh, you know, seriously, I think the fact that the books are published in translation in English because of the global importance of the English language makes a much bigger difference, a much bigger splash yeah, sure. than if it were translated into Dutch or Danish. Uh, nothing right. against the Dutch or Danish, of course, but, but you know, English is uh, kind of a lingua franca. So the fact that these are now all in English, I think, I, I hope, will inspire people in other countries to, uh, to look at these, take these books seriously, not just as, you know, some scribbling by some commie. They are serious works of art. International publishers really did a heroic job putting these books out, and I, I really want to thank them. Well, thank you, Eric. All right, thank you so well, much. I've been talking with Eric Gordon, translator of Until Tomorrow Comrade by Manuel Tiago, alias Alvaro Cunhal, published by International Publishers. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.